Good morning. Hey, really glad you're here. We're continuing a series of messages that we started a couple weeks ago uh, called Amazing Stories. And uh, it's just about when we got together to to plan this series, we were trying to think of stories in the Bible where just some strange kind of things happen, things that don't seem to happen in today's world. And you read about them in the Bible and it's written in there in black and white and you read it and and you get done and you're like, man, that is... That's just odd. That's, that's something that, that I've never heard about before, never known anyone to experience. And so, so that's what we're doing. And today we're going to be in the book of Numbers. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have your Bibles, don't worry. The Scripture will be on the screen in a minute when I start to read it. Book of Numbers is in the Old Testament, and uh, it's the fourth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, then Numbers. And, uh, and, and, uh, and actually the, the message next week that Donnie's bringing is also from the book of Numbers. Because there's just some weird stuff in Numbers. If you read Numbers, there's just some, some strange stories. And one of them we're going to talk about today. Now, before we're going to be in Numbers chapter 21, so if you want to go ahead and turn there. Before I read it, and, and what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to, it's just five verses. I'm going to read the whole story in five verses without any, without any commentary. I'm just going to read it, kind of let it sit there for a minute, and then we're going to talk about it after that. But before I do that, let me give you some context so that you'll understand what's going on in Numbers 21. The Israelites, uh, the nation of Israel, who God founded, and these are his cho- chosen people, um, they, they had been slaves in Egypt. And while they were slaves in Egypt, things were bad because being a slave is not good. And, and, and uh, they, Moses and, and the people cried out to God, and God heard their cry, and he rescued them from Egypt. And he did m- miracles to rescue them from Egypt. And one of the biggest miracles was the parting of the sea, and, and they crossed over the sea on dry land, and, and this is what we call the Exodus. That's where the book Exodus, the name of the book, comes from, and where we get our word exit from, to get out. They were exiting from Egypt, so it was an exodus out of Egypt, so it was this miraculous time. Well, what's going on now in Numbers 21 is they've escaped from Egypt, and now they're in the wilderness, some people call it the desert. The scripture calls it the wilderness and the desert kind of interchangeably. It was, but, the, but the point, the main point is, is that they were without a home. They were not living in homes like you go to when you get done here. You go to your home. They didn't have that. And so they're wandering around in the desert. And, and the, they know that there's a promised land that God's told them about that they're going to get to one day. But it hasn't happened yet, and the reason they're having to wander so long is because of their own sinfulness, because they continue to disobey God in action and in attitude. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This story today is, is deals with some of that. So, so let me read Numbers 21, starting with verse 4. So if you've got your Bibles, follow along. If you don't have your Bibles, look up here on the screen. Numbers 21, 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? Now, I told you I was going to read the whole story with no commentary. Let me say this real quick, though. Y'all, some of y'all knew I couldn't do this anyway without saying something. But um, this, this is kind of like a recurring theme through the time they're in the wilderness. Anytime things got hard, they would say, we'd be better off if we were still slaves. Why'd you bring us out of Egypt? So this is kind of a recurring theme that God has heard a lot from these people. There is no bread. There is no water. 
and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now, that's kind of a weird story. I've been in church my whole life. I've been on staff at a church for over 20 years now. And I've never known God to release venomous snakes into a church and then start biting people and they die. I've been around some people that I wanted to release some venomous snakes on, but I've never known God to do that. But here in, in Numbers 21, that's what happened. And so when we read that, it's kind of a, kind of a strange story. But, but as we read it, I think there's two things that we can learn about God and how he deals with sin. And, and I think that we need to hear this message today. Because as we talk, I believe we're going to see that, that we're more like the Israelites than we think we are. And the first truth, and these are very basic things, but the first truth is this. God judges sin. So if you're taking notes, God judges sin. That's one of the first truths we can, we can uh, get, get from reading this, this scripture. Now, <clears throat> at first when you read this story... The Israelites seem very different than we are. It's a different culture. Uh, it's a different time. It's a different way of life. The, they didn't have a home to go to. Most of you in here, hopefully all of you in here, you have a home to go to when you leave here today. They, they were wondering day by day whether they were going to have uh, milk for their babies and, and food for their kids and, and water to drink and all that kind of stuff. And so at first when we look at it, it, it seems like that their situation was very different than us. And at first it seems that, that their sins were very different than us. But as you look at this, this story closely, as I read it, I begin to see that the sins the Israelites committed against God were very similar to the sins that we commit against God today. And, and when you read that story at first, you might say, Cliff, I don't really see any real serious sins in here. But, but let, let, there's, there's three that I see just in the first two verses of this scripture. There are three sins. So if you want to write these down, if you're taking notes, the first one is this. They were impatient with God's timing. They were impatient with God's timing. Look at verse 4 there. It says, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient along the way. Now see, they knew that the promised land was out there. They had, they had talked about it. They had been taught that uh, from the time they were young. They had taught, they were teaching that to their children. And they were saying, it's there. The promised land is there. One day we're going to get there. And, and as they were traveling, they were actually getting closer to where the promised land was. And so there was anticipation. There was excitement. We're almost there. We're, we're almost at the gates. We're going to get there. And, and God's going to give us this land. And then all of a sudden in verse 4 it says, God led them to go along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. Now here's what you need to understand about that. 
They were backtracking. It would be like if I told you, hey, I'm going to the beach next week. Why don't you and your family go with me? And you're like, yes, I love the beach. And so we're, you know, we're going to go down to Myrtle Beach area, you know, Surfside, Garden City, Litchfield, where it is you like to go, that's where we're going. And we get in the car, and I get on I-85 going towards Atlanta. And you're thinking, yeah, this is cool, that makes sense. Then when you, where you're supposed to get off on 385 right there at Woodruff Road, I just blow right past it, keep going. You're thinking, well, this is kind of weird, but Cliff's driving, I'm not going to say anything. Then about the time we get to the Georgia state line, you say, hey, I thought we were going to the beach. And I'm like, yeah, we are. What's the big deal? Well, you were supposed to, we're like going the opposite way. No, I go to the beach by way of Atlanta. That's always the way I go to the beach, man. I go down, I get on I-20, and then, you know, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? And so that's what the Israelites were dealing with. They're thinking, we're making a straight line. We're going towards the promised land. And all of a sudden, God says, no, I want you to go around Edom. And what happens when, the, when he has that end of plan for them? They don't like it. They get impatient. They get impatient with the timing of God because it wasn't the time yet for them to go to the promised land. It wasn't the time yet for God to deliver that to them. And they got impatient with God's timing. And, and you think, well, Cliff, don't we all? Sometimes that wouldn't, wouldn't you get impatient with that? Yeah, I probably would. But it would be a sin for me to do it just like it was a sin for them to do it because by being impatient with God's timing, what they were really doing is they were questioning God's authority. They were saying, God, we know better than you. We know where the promised land is. We, why don't we just go ahead to it? We don't understand why you're making us go this backtrack route. We should be able to go directly to it right now. But God was saying, now's not the time. And they were questioning the authority of God by being impatient with his timing. Second thing that they were doing that I think we can relate to. They were doubting God's provision. They were doubting God's provision. Look at verse 5. They spoke against God and Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. Now here's what you need to understand, and some of you already know this. In, way back in Exodus chapter 16, they had complained to God and said, We don't have any bread. So you know what God did? We talked about this just here a few weeks ago. God began to, every night when they would go to bed in their tent, He would rain down manna it wasn't exactly like the bread they were used to eating but it was like bread it was something that they could eat and it would give them everything they needed to survive and so they would wake up in the morning through no effort of their own and walk outside and the ground would be covered with food for them to eat covered with manna and all they had to do was go out gather what they needed for the day they had enough to eat all day long that's all it took and God was providing for them. And here they are. They've been, they've been in the wilderness now for some time. Every morning they, they've woken up. God has been faithful every morning to provide the manna. And here they are now in verse 5 saying, there's no bread. God, we, even though you provided, even though when we woke up this morning there was bread on the ground, even though when we woke up yesterday morning there was bread on the ground, even though when we woke up the morning before that there was bread on the ground, we don't believe that you're going to keep doing that for us. We doubt your provision. And here's what's even crazier, where it says there is no water. Those of you that have your Bibles with you, all right, we're in Exodus 21. Look back at Exodus 20 right now if you've got your Bible. Now, if your Bible is like mine, at the, at the top of the chapters, it's got these little, like, summaries right there. What does your Bible say at the top of Exodus chapter 20? Somebody shout it out. Water from the rock. 
one chapter before them complaining that they have no water. They were walking through the desert. They had no water. And God provided water from them out of a rock. There was no stream. There was no pond. There was no stagnant puddle. There was a rock. And water. And God provided for them clean, drinkable water out of a rock. And now, here they are one chapter later saying, there's no water. God, we don't believe you're going to provide food or water for us. Yeah, sure you've done that in the past, but we doubt that you're going to continue to do that for us. Um, a few weeks ago, me and a couple of my friends went hiking up at Table Rock. And um, I don't know if you've ever hiked Table Rock all the way up to the top, but at the very bottom part, there's a creek that runs beside the trail, and it's, you know, people get in it and all that kind of stuff. And then as you're heading up the mountain, you get to this point, and you leave the creek behind, and you go up, and then you start going straight up this hill. And it's, it'll make you cuss, and it'll burn your legs and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and so you're going up this thing, and, and water's way, way, way down at the hill now. Well, we got all the way up to the top, and hung out up there looking at the view, which was awesome. And we turned around and started coming back. And as we're coming back, there's a couple coming up, a man and a woman, and they've got their dog with them. And this dog is looking at these people like, I hate y'all for bringing me up here. And the dog's tongue is hanging out. And the man says, have you just been to the top? And I said, yeah. He said, is there any water up there? He said, my dog's really thirsty and we didn't bring any water. Is there any water? I said, no. I said, we left the water behind way back down at the bottom of the hill. His wife then says, I promise you she said this, she said, you'd think they would have thought of that. And I thought to myself, who would have thought of that? It's not like the people that cut this trail in also created the creek, you know. I, I wanted to say, you mean God? You would think God would have thought about the fact that you were going to bring your dog up here? And I, I resisted the urge to say, yeah, I think that you would have thought about bringing some water for your dog. But I didn't say that. And I just said, yeah, I'm sorry. There's a, and I didn't offer the dog any of my water because I needed my water, right? And, uh, and, and so I think that in some ways this was kind of like the attitude the Israelites had. It's like, God, you'd think you would have thought about the fact before you brought us out of Egypt that we needed food and water. Well, God did think about that. And he had been providing that for them. But they were still doubting the provision of God. And then the last sin that they committed, to me, is the most shocking of all. Not only did they doubt God's provision, but they hated God's provision. They hated God's provision. Let me read verse 5 to you again. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Now, I believe that all sin is equal in the eyes of God. The book of James says that if you stumble at one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. So in God's eyes, sin is equal. Sin equals rebellion against him, whether to us it seems big or it seems small. But to me, this seems worse than all the other ones. For them to say, God, I, I, I'm impatient with the timing of this thing. I, I'm ready to go ahead and be in the promised land. And, or to say, 
God, I don't believe that you're going to provide food for us tomorrow. Those are bad. But to me, it seems worse to say, and God, the food that you have provided, it stinks. I hate this stuff. If I have to eat this another day, I'm going to puke. God, this makes me sick. That's what they were saying to God. And you think about the arrogance to say that to God. God, I detest. You're taking care of me. I'm living every day by your hand, and I hate it. I hate what you've done for me. As a parent, maybe you've experienced this with a teenager. And I've talked to parents. And and teenagers, you want to really tick your parents off? Go home and say, I hate this house we live in. And parents, if they do that, make them sleep outside for a couple of nights. Tell them I said it was all right. But seriously, that, it's, it's ungrateful for, for someone who is providing nothing. Your child is providing nothing. They're not paying for anything. They are consuming only. For them to come to you as a parent and say, I hate this car. This phone you gave me stinks. Why can't I have the newest iPad? The last iPad that you bought me for Christmas, it has a smaller screen and not as many pixels, whatever that means. I mean, for for them to do that, it would just be arrogant and, and ridiculous. And that's exactly what the Israelites were doing to God. They were saying, yeah, God, we are living every day because you're giving us this manna to eat, but we hate it. We detest the provisions of God. Now, when I read that story, and and as I continue to reread it and prepare for this message, I began to really see myself in those three sins. I I can see where I'm guilty of all three of those. And see, when, when, when we think about the fact that God judges sin, we normally think about that with what we consider big sins. Like if, if, you know, the, the sins that, 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 that we don't do. But we don't think about God judging sins like this. And when I read it, I see myself in these, you know, when it talks about being impatient with God's timing, I mean, I've, I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of that about the, the, the land payoff that Donnie talked about today. I've, I've had feelings in my heart of, God, you know, last week when I was preaching up here and I'm sweating like crazy and I'm looking at y'all and y'all are all sweating, I'm going home and thinking, God, why can't we have somewhere different to meet now? Why do we have to go around and eat them before we can get the building, wherever that might be? I'm being impatient with the timing of God, which is a sin, because I'm questioning God's authority. Or, or when, it, when it talks in there about, uh, um, talks about doubting God's provision, that happened to me just this week. Just this past Thursday, I went to see somebody, see a friend of mine, and when I went to get back in my truck, my truck wouldn't start. And that started a process of me going to AutoZone and then walking back to get another car and then getting a tow truck, and it started this whole process. And, and my truck is still not at my house. It's at the mechanic shop right now. And all weekend long, you know what I had to fight off? I had to fight off the thought. In my mind, I would close my eyes, and I'd see the wheel of fortune going around and the bankruptcy, you know, big black bankruptcy thing coming my way. And I had to fight that thought off to think, oh, that's it. Truck's dead. You know, we're... We're going to be going bankrupt pretty soon here. And here's the crazy thing about that. Me and Sherry have been married for 21 years. And in 21 years, God has never 
ever failed to provide for us. He's never failed to give us exactly what we need. But still, even with 21 years of God's faithfulness, as soon as my truck breaks down, what do I do? I begin to worry. And I begin to think, well, I don't know if we're going to make it. Doubting God's provision. And then I'd like to think that I'm above hating God's provision. I'd like to think that I've never done that. But I have. I've got this phone right here. It's supposed to be a smartphone. I call it the dumb phone. But here's the thing. Every time I say I hate this phone, do you think, Cliff, that's just a really small thing? But this is a tool that God's given me. I can look at my email sometimes. I can, you know, all this kind of stuff with this phone. And, and, and here it is. I grew up in a world where people that had phones in their cars were, like, rich. And now I'm walking around just a regular guy carrying a phone that can hook up the satellites and see maps of Iraq and Afghanistan and California and whatever I want to, and I will say that I hate this thing. And maybe for, for sometimes for me it's bigger and sometimes for you it's bigger. Maybe sometimes I think, man, I hate this house. I just wish I had a bigger one. Wish I had one that was nicer. Wish I lived in a different place. God, I, I hate going in this morning to teach. I'm tired. Maybe you go to work on Monday mornings. I hate this job. And what are we doing when we do that? We're telling God, God, you provided this. You gave me this job. You gave me this house. You gave me this phone. And I hate it. We're hating the provision of God. See, the, the thing about those things is they're, they're extremely dangerous because oftentimes we don't see those things as sin. We, we, what we do is we, we, we act like, well, everybody complains about that stuff and it's, it's really not that big of a deal and I don't feel like that all the time and so it's really not a sin if I'm, if I'm not grateful for the things God's provided. It's really not a sin if, if I hate the provision of God. And what happens is pretty soon we find ourselves, we, we do those things so much, we, we're impatient with God's timing, we doubt God's provision, and we hate God's provision. We, we do that so often that pretty soon we're living a lifestyle of ungratefulness. And, and, and we find ourselves that, that we're really more like the Israelites that we want to admit because the Israelites gave in to what came naturally to them ungratefulness see ungratefulness comes naturally to us we are basically factories of ungratefulness if left on our own we will be ungrateful that is our default setting in life is to be ungrateful and and so so if if we don't if we don't pursue god and we don't we don't ask jesus to help us and we don't make a conscious effort to, to be grateful for what we have, we'll find ourselves complaining about things that God has given us. And you might say, Cliff, that's not really a sin. Well, according to Scripture, it is. And according to this story, God takes it pretty doggone seriously. We're going to get to verse 6 in just a minute. But before I do, I, I want to I read a, 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 a passage from the book of Psalms because that what the Israelites should have done in the desert, instead of saying, 
God, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die? And instead of saying, we hate this food and, and we don't know if, if you're going to provide for us tomorrow, they should have remembered what he had done for them before. They should have done what David did when he wrote Psalm 27. Look at Psalm 27, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 20. This is what it says. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, through your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. See, if we want to fight off ungratefulness, we need to go back and we need to remember the way God has provided for us. That's what the Israelites should have done. They should have done what it says in Psalm 27, gone back and remembered, God, you're the one that brought us out of Egypt. It was by your hand that we crossed the ocean. It was by your hand that we have food day in and day out. No God is greater than you. We choose to remember your miracles and choose to remember your provision and we choose to reject ungratefulness. And that's what we have got to do in our lives. We've got to remember the blessings of God, the provision of God, and that the timing of God is perfect. But God judges sin. And that was the sins of the Israelites. So in verse 6, it says this, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Don't miss the first four words of that verse. Then the Lord sent. They weren't wandering around through the desert and just came upon a den of snakes and accidentally people started getting bit. They didn't forget to call the the, uh, the, the exterminator and have him get rid of all the snakes in that area of the desert before they pass through. No, these snakes were sent by, directly by the hand of God to punish them, to judge the sin of the people. And if, and if you're wondering, if well, well, surely, Cliff, maybe it was just an accident. We're talking about a million people. That's, that's the number of folks that were traveling through the desert. So even if they did just come upon a den of snakes, it wouldn't have spread out among all the people. But this was a million people, and the snakes were spread out among all of them. There was terror in the camp, and people were being bit by the snakes, and they were dying immediately from the venom of the snakes. See, we don't like God. We, we really don't like the idea of, of God judging sin. We, we, like, we like the idea of God judging other people's sin. We like that idea, but not our sin. We, we read the newspaper or watch the news about a tragedy in Colorado where somebody goes in and shoots a bunch of people, and immediately in me and probably in you, we start thinking, that dude needs to be taken out. We need to kill that joker right away. That's what we feel like because we, we're all for the judgment of other people's sin. But when it comes to our sin, we don't want it to be judged because we don't think our sin is that bad. Well, 
And that's why I love what this story says about the sin of the Israelites, because it's stuff we can relate to. If we had read that story and it said, God judged the sin of the Israelites by sending venomous snakes because what they were doing was they were killing each other in their sleep and they were you know, having multiple uh, people sleep with each other in their tents every night and they were cooking meth and, and giving it out to their kids. If we'd have read that, we'd have said, well, yeah, sure, they should be judged, but I'll never do that kind of stuff. But instead, it says they were ungrateful. And we're like, oh, yeah, I'm ungrateful. They hated the provision of God. Yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of that. And that was the sin that God judged them for. And it was from the hand of God that the judgment came. Now, if the, if the story ended after verse 6, it would be very sad. And we should all go home and cry and just give up on life. But it doesn't end after verse 6. Because the first truth is God judges sin. Here's the second one. God is merciful to sinners. God is merciful to sinners. Look at verse 7. After the snakes are out, biting people left and right, people dying. Verse 7. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The first part of that verse is very important for us to understand. The first thing the Israelites did, which is what we've got to do, is they took responsibility for their sin. They didn't come to Moses and say, Hey, Moses, we really didn't mean it. You misinterpreted what we said. We were misquoted. It's really not that serious. No, they just came and said, We were wrong. We sinned. When we spoke against you as the leader of God's people, and when we spoke against God, we sinned when we did that. They were taking responsibility. They weren't covering it up. They weren't denying it. And that's, that's a first step that we've all got to take to be honest with ourselves about who we are as sinful people. I don't know how many of you have been through or have friends who've been through a 12-step program like AA or NA or any of those kinds of things. But the very first step, probably all of you know, even if you've never been through it, what's the first step? You've got to admit that you have a problem, right? You can't, you can't quit being an alcoholic until you first admit and say, well, I am an alcoholic. And, 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 and for, for the people to receive the mercy of God, they were receiving the judgment of God, but for the people to receive the mercy of God, the first step for them was to come and say, we were wrong, we were sinful, and we need help. This is our fault. It's nobody else's fault but ours. So verse 8 and 9, this was, this was the response of God. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. So God's mercy triumphed over God's judgment. But I want you to notice in those two verses. Verse 8 says, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Does it say there, and then no one will ever be bitten by a snake again? What does it say? Then anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And then verse 9, so Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then no one was bitten anymore. Does it say that? No, it says, then when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the snake and they lived. See, when they looked at the snake, that was God's mercy triumphing over the ultimate judgment, which was death. God was judging them with death. But when we come to God, when we come to Jesus, 
and we ask for forgiveness of our sin and we beg him to forgive us and we trust in what Jesus did on the cross to forgive us of our sin, we receive the mercy of God. But God does not take away the consequences of our sin. Sin has consequences. And God chooses to allow those consequences to remain. Just like when the people would look at the snake, they still got bit by a snake. I've never been bit by a snake. But I I imagine it doesn't feel good. And I know that it's scary. And so they were being spared the judgment, but the consequences were still going on. Let, Let me give you a drastic example of the difference between consequences of sin and the judgment of sin. Uh, let's say that, that you don't know Jesus and uh, it's your habit to go out and get drunk every Friday night. Now you're saying, whoa, whoa, Cliff, we don't get into alcohol. Drinking alcohol isn't a sin. No, drinking alcohol isn't a sin. But you know what it is? Getting drunk all through the Bible. Do not get drunk on wine. It's all through there. And so, so that's your thing. That's what you do on Friday nights. You go out. Had a long week, it's Miller time or, you know, whatever time it is that you drink. And you go and you get three sheets to the wind and then you commit another sin by getting in your car and driving home. Well, one night you're driving home drunk and you have an accident and this accident involves another car. Two people die and you lose your leg out of the wreck. You have to have one of your legs amputated. So you're in the hospital recovering from this. They're about to bring manslaughter charges on you. And somebody comes and tells you about the gospel. And you hear about Jesus. You're convicted to your heart. And so you pray and you ask God to forgive you of your sin and you accept Jesus as your Savior. Now, at that moment, you will be spared the ultimate judgment of God, which is to go to hell for eternity. You will be spared that judgment. Mercy will triumph over judgment. But the consequences of your sin are you don't have a leg, two people have died, and you're going to be prosecuted for manslaughter. When you pray and ask Jesus into your heart, it's not a magical formula that all of a sudden your leg grows back, two people pop out of the grave and come back to life, and all charges are dropped. The consequences of sin remain. But the judgment of God has been triumphed over by the mercy of God. And that's what we see happening here in this story. And so, maybe it's, it's confusing to you. It can be confusing if you think about it. How is it that a God who is so serious about sin that He judges sin by death, how can that same God then provide mercy to the sinners who commit that sin? Well, we find the answer in the New Testament but we also find it in this scripture because the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. And you might be saying, Cliff, Jesus is not in this scripture at all. Not in the book of Numbers. He's not. But remember verse 8 and 9. What did verse 8 and 9 say? Make a snake, put it on a pole. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and anyone's bitten could look at the bronze snake and live. What's the most famous verse in all the Bible? What is it? John 3.16, thanks to that dude at football games, that is the most famous verse in all the Bible, right? Rainbow head, and he holds up the thing. That's the most famous verse. 
A lot of you know that verse by heart. You can quote it because you grew up in Sunday school like I did. I still quote it from the old King James Version, even though I teach out of the NIV. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. What it says is, is that God cared about us. He was so... Um, uh, heartbroken over our sin that he would sacrifice his own son to die on a cross and if we believe in him we can be forgiven of sin mercy wins over the judgment of god that's what john three sixteen is all about you know what john three fourteen and 15 say let me read it to you this is jesus speaking to a man named nicodemus and jesus said just as moses lifted up the snake in the desert so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Thousands of years before, in a desert, in a place that most of you will never go to, God was pointing the way of the Israelites to Jesus. When he lifted up the bronze snake, on the staff that was pointing the way that one day Jesus himself would be nailed to a cross laid flat on the ground and then lifted up and everyone could look at that just like they could look at that bronze snake and if you looked at Jesus on the cross and you believed that and you accepted that that what he was doing on the cross was for you and it was the sacrifice and that it was he was up there because of your sin and my sin the small sins of attitude and selfishness what we think are the big sins of murder and rape and killing and those kinds of things that he took all of that on him and when he was lifted up if you would look at him and believe in him you could live you could escape the ultimate judgment of God just like the Israelites escaped the ultimate judgment of God why because the judgment of God was put on him the full wrath the full judgment of God was poured out on Jesus <coughs> that's what the cross is all about the cross is where God's judgment and God's mercy meet. The reason that God can be a God who judges sin with death and also a God who is merciful to the very sinners who commit that sin is because of Jesus. Because where the cross is, where judgment and mercy meets, mercy wins. Mercy wins over the judgment of God. And just like God was pointing the Israelites to Jesus all those years ago, He's pointing you to Jesus today. If, if you're going through this life unsure of whether your sin has been forgiven or not, you're gambling on something that you're going to lose in the end. Because God judges sin always that's never going to change but he is also merciful to sinners if you will do like the Israelites did and come to him and say I'm not denying it I'm not covering up I'm a sinner and I have to do that daily since my truck broke down Thursday I have gone to God and said 
God, I am a sinner. I've been sinful in doubting your provision. And I trust in what Jesus did on the cross to forgive me. Because I can't do it myself. And Maybe you're in a situation where you've heard about Jesus, you've wrestled with this idea of maybe, maybe I accept Jesus, maybe, maybe I become a Christian. The way's being pointed. You need to look to the cross. And those that look to Jesus on the cross can live. But without Jesus, there's no hope for mercy. Because you will experience God's judgment for your sin. I want to say a, a prayer. And this is what I want to do. I tell you what, everybody just bow your heads right where you are. If you'll just keep your heads bowed and before I pray, if you would um, say to me today that you're not sure where you stand in relation to God as far as judgment for your sins. You don't know if you've been forgiven or not and, and you think you might need Jesus. You're, you're not sure about that. I want you, if you would, just raise your hand up really high where I can see it and just keep it up there for a moment so that I can see that. If you would raise that up and I'll know that and I can pray for you. And then if you're in here today and you know you're a follower of Christ, you know you're a Christian, just evaluate yourself in terms of living a lifestyle of ungratefulness. And spend a little time right now by yourself and just confess that to God and say, God, I've been sinful about what you've provided for me. And ask for his forgiveness. And let me pray for us. Father God, When we read the stories in the scripture, stories of your judgment, they make us uncomfortable. But God, I'm thankful that everywhere in scripture where there's a story of judgment, it always points to the grace and the mercy of the cross. That the story doesn't end with judgment. The story doesn't end with death. The story ends in heaven with eternal life that was provided by Jesus on the cross. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for everybody here. I pray for us as a congregation that we would fight off the natural tendency to produce ungratefulness, to just be factories of it, but instead that we would live lifestyles of gratefulness, lifestyles where we trust you for your provision, where we love the provision you've given us, and where we understand that your timing is perfect and we follow you. Thank you for giving us this place to meet in. Thank you for allowing us to meet here today. Thank you for your word and for the truth that it teaches us. And help us to live more in line with what it says this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.